knowing Jesus is all that matters. Amen. So good morning to one and all here today and to those joining with us on our podcast service. Welcome to the house of God here at Christian Outreach Centre. And uh, you are all very, very welcome. And um, who here would like to hear from the Lord for you personally this morning? Who would here like to hear a word from God? Some people think, oh, I wish God spoke to me so personally as he did to the prophets of old, for instance. So he would hear, just boldly put up your hand if you would like to hear from God for yourself. Oh, I see those hands. I don't see all the hands, but I see most of the hands. But just like to set a scene here just for a moment, if you could be a little bit patient with me. And I believe this morning is going to be a great blessing to you. In 1845, at the instigation of the British government, there was an archaeologist named Henry Layard, and he started excavating where a previous archaeological team had already given up. The mounds of sand north of Mosul in northern Iraq, and unearthed, and they unearthed the walls of one of the greatest palaces of Nineveh. 1845. No longer was Nineveh a myth and a city just mentioned in the Bible. A lot of people think, oh, that's just stories. That it could be, there could be nothing worse than the use of that term stories when we relate to the things in this amazing book of books. The biblical lost city for over 2,000 years and covered with the sands of time was at last rediscovered ancient armies, and I believe Alexander the Great and his armies walked over near and over the city of Nineveh without even knowing it. And But in that time, the things that were found in that archaeological discovery, it yielded her secrets and the biblical accounts were again solidified. Archaeology has only solidified the biblical text. The greatest archaeological finds in any period, in any time, have been the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that's another story. I'd like if you would, uh, skeptics have said that the account of Jonah was not true. Not because they didn't believe that the Lord could prepare a great fish, but they said because they can't find the city of Nineveh to support even the story. But the original excavations may have never made may have never even been made had it not been for the biblical account which caused them to look in the first place. Isn't that amazing? And so it is. A good archaeologist will refer to the Bible, then begin to dig. Uh, Inspiration saves a lot of perspiration, amen? And it will so in your own life. The inspiration of God is just not information. Information you can get from a textbook. But we need uh, inspiration, amen? And that comes from the Holy Spirit. And you can choose to open your ears to the Holy Ghost or you can choose to shut them off. The Lord never ever takes your ability to reason, to think or to decide for yourself. You and I are each given that ability. So I'd like if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. What a beautiful and wonderful story it is. And we know Jonah for all the wrong reasons. Isn't that true? You first would have heard of Jonah in Sunday school or children's church. And it was just related to you as a story. 
But my Bible tells me that it's an actual occurrence. In Genesis 12, 1 to 3, I spoke about it in the last week or so. We read in recent weeks that the seed of Abraham would be the blessing to all nations or all families. The Hebrew word there, mishpacha, means families. All families of the earth and in you all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we are the spiritual seed. We don't replace Israel, but we are still the spiritual seed of Abraham. And through the church, God has been able to bless the nations of the earth and the families of the earth. So Jonah was written approximately, I don't know, was 2,760 years ago is the most accepted uh, result there. But here we see that God wanted to use a prophet of the Lord to bless a foreign and even pagan nation and people. And this has worked out in a practical way when God himself places the land of Israel in the midst or the belly button of the three major continents of the earth. And you'll see that Israel is here, Africa is here, Asia is there and Europe is there. And what ties it all together is a little, little, tiny, tiny nation of Israel from about here to Cairns Long and about from here to, to the river wide, amen? Only about 80 kilometers wide on average is the land of Israel. But that little, tiny nation ties those three massive continents of the world together. I'd like to paraphrase some of Jonah now. And you know what? Uh, The book of Jonah should be the shortest book in the whole of the Bible. In fact, it shouldn't probably even be a book. It should be just 10 verses. uh, And it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And so that's the first two verses. And so... It should then read, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. (laughs) But he doesn't do that, does he? Because Jonah was disobedient. And so the book of Jonah is four chapters in length and not ten verses. And I have found when you're obedient to God, everything is straightforward. But when we're disobedient with God, everything is very, very lengthy and drawn out and we continue to go around the mountain. The book of Jonah, I have counted it, should only be 10 verses if he just merely said yes. How uncomplicated our lives would be if we just said yes to God. How uncomplicated. Young people, do you want an uncomplicated life? Just say yes to Jesus. I can assure you from living my own life, I was 29 years old and I'd already made my life uncomfortable and complicated. But then I made a decision to say yes to Jesus and my life has been at times complicated. There are always storms, but things with God are straightforward because you know where you're going. And so here is a, he's the only prophet sent to preach to the Gentiles and so I'd like to, for you to show some empathy and say, poor Jonah. Poor Jonah. Say it with some, poor Jonah. So only Jonah was given a message of repentance and mercy to preach directly to a Gentile city, that being Nineveh. 
Please show some empathy and say, poor Jonah. Poor Jonah. It doesn't finish there. Jonah hears a word from God, a direction and a command to go to the city of Nineveh. What of our response this morning? Poor Jonah. Okay, it's good to work with people who have empathy for others. And so we empathize with Jonah. But why did Jonah have a problem? You know, Nineveh is one of the oldest cities of the earth. It is one of the oldest, and it was one of the largest cities of the earth, if not the largest. Its people were Assyrian, and they had been a dominating people in the region for centuries and centuries. They were regarded, in my own words, but when you can read the biblical account, I would say this is not a bad description. These people were regarded as mean, nasty, wicked, and cruel, okay? So Jonah had to contend with the people who were mean, nasty, wicked, and cruel. Why didn't he want to go there? Because they had particularly been vicious to the Jewish people, mean, nasty, wicked, and cruel. Why didn't Jonah want to go there? Because they were mean, nasty, wicked, and cruel. Isn't that a good reason not to carry out and be obedient to God? You've got to work with people who are mean and nasty and wicked and cruel. And, and Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, was sent to bring a, a cry out against them for their wickedness, had come up before God, and, and Jonah was a, he was a revival preacher. And basically his heart was not for this people. Jonah didn't respond, Lord, it's too far. I googled it this morning. What's the difference between Nazareth to Nineveh? I thought, oh, I'll just Google it and see. Anyway, it's 1,212 kilometers up through Damascus. If you had a car, if Jonah had a car, perhaps at Pajero, 17 hours, 20 minutes, and no tolls. <laughs> That's in modern-day transport. But 2,860, 760 years ago, they didn't have a Pajero. By foot, Google couldn't calculate it by foot because it went through too many uh, countries and there were too numerous restricted areas. But you know what? It would have been just as many countries, if not more, and more restricted areas then than there was now. So it wasn't an easy task. But did Jonas respond, Lord, it's too far, it's too difficult? I don't have a Pajero? <laughs> Another option, Joppa. He could have just gone to Joppa. Joppa got on a ship, went up the coast of the Mediterranean and gone inland. That would have maybe taken about at least a third off the journey, 400 k's. But Jonah didn't respond. But Lord, these people are mean, nasty, wicked and cruel. He didn't mention that. He mentioned nothing. What did Jonah, the revivalist prophet, how did he respond? He says, it, it says here that he went down to the seaport of Joppa. Circle that word down in the word Bible. And he booked the fare to take a boat ride to Tarshish, and he went down into it. There it says again, circle that word down. Tarshish was sort of a thought to be on the other side of Spain, or the furthest part of the Mediterranean that you could go. That is one, one Tarshish. There are other possible locations, but that is a common one used. So he booked a fare for a boat ride to Tarshish, and he went down into it. Circle the word down. And so instead of bringing revival to a desperate people, he was paying the fare at the ticket office at Joppa with the souls of the people in the largest city in the ancient world. That was the price 
of Jonah's disobedience. He paid for it in blood with the souls of the people. The Bible says 120,000 people minimum lived in the area of Nineveh. 120,000 people who desperately needed to hear the gospel message. And God had a heart for these people. And Jonah didn't do anything, but he just began to run. In verse 5, it says, Then he went down into the lowest parts of the ship. Circle that word down again. When you're disobedient, you always seem to be going down. I can testify personally that has been the case in my own life. When I never responded to God earlier in my life, I went down. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says, He went down to the bottom of the mountains. And I have found when we run from God, you will always go down. And when you run from God, you will always run from a place of reasonable sort of pasture into a wilderness. When you run from God, you will always run into a wilderness. You will never run into a place where there's a bountiful and plenty. You think, I don't want to serve God. I know about God. I know a little about him, but that's as far as it goes. I want to do my own thing. I want to live my own life. I want to tell you that you're going to go down and you will run because the hand of the Lord is upon your life. If you're sitting here today or if you're listening online, the hand of God is upon your life and God wants you to respond because there are people who need and your life is a witness for the people around you. Amen. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, a man left Jerusalem. We know Jerusalem is the city of the great king. And he went down to Jericho. I've gone to Jericho from Jerusalem. And Jericho is one of the lowest, it is the lowest city on the face of the earth. When you leave the city of the great king and you leave the great king, which is Jesus, you will always go down to the lowest parts of the earth. Let's read uh, Psalm 139. Jonah didn't respond positively, but Psalm 139 will give you a bit of a, a bit of an inkling on how he felt when they threw him overboard. Amen. They threw him overboard when he was in that ship, and the captain of him says, "Arise, sleeper, call upon your God." Even a heathen captain wants believers to call upon our God. And the world is waiting for the church to call upon God. But the church asleep needs a beep. It's an alarm call. An alarm never sounds good. And if I never sound good, it's because I'm alarming. And we're supposed to be alarming. When you blow the trumpet, it's alarming. It's not a pleasant sound sometimes. But that's the gospel message. It is a warning and it never sounds pleasant to the ears. And here it is, Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even though your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me, If I say, surely the darkness shall fall upon me, even the night shall be light to me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. What a great psalm. That's just a portion of that psalm. But you can almost hear those words echoing out of the belly of a whale and Jonah is reflecting on his life. Who's getting something out of this? Arise, sleeper, call upon your God. 
Even the world is waiting for people like Nina to call upon God. Amen. In this perilous age and time. And the Lord is prepared for the most lethargic. He's prepared for the most reluctant and even the most rebellious. For his love for the people of the earth in um, marine terms would be called unfathomable. That's true, isn't it? God's love for humanity is unfathomable. So the men of the boat throw Jonah at his request into the fathoms and depths of the sea. I checked it out this morning. A fathom is about six foot of water. But the Lord is prepared for our responses, whether they be positive or negative. And we see that the Lord prepared a storm in chapter 1 and verse 4. The Lord prepares a great fish in chapter 1 and verse 17. In, in chapter 4 and verse 6, the Lord prepares a gourd. And in, and in chapter 4 and verse 7, the Lord prepares a worm. And the Lord prepares a wind in chapter 4 and verse 8. So God is prepared, amen, for our responses. And God will build his church and the gates of hell, even your disobedience, will not prevail against it. And when you don't be disobedient, the blessing, God wants you to be involved, for the blessing of heaven will be upon you when you're obedient. Luke eleven twenty eight comes into play again. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. It's written in red. Jesus said it himself. The blessing that comes with obedience when God involves you in building his church to go out into all the world to preach the gospel, to go to places, to, to people who are mean and nasty and cruel and wicked and you think, oh, Lord, they don't deserve salvation. And that's true because we don't either. Think about that for a minute. And Jonah had forgotten. Those people don't deserve salvation. He was right. But neither did Jonah. And neither do we. For all have sinned. We all like sheep, as I said in 53 verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All the cross. All the cross. Oh, the cross. In chapter 2, we see Jonah is imprisoned. Literally, he is imprisoned because the Lord had prepared a great fish. And he now goes down again to the depths of Sheol or hell in the belly of the great fish. That's what the word says in here. Jesus himself likens Jonah's experience to that of hell. Let's go to Matthew 12, 39. And you'll see Jesus' own recollection of the life and ministry of Jonah. He answered them, this is the Pharisees, an, even, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What could that mean? For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, Jesus went down into hell and grabbed the hell, the keys of death and hell, amen, and returned in victory. Amen. The men of Nineveh, Jesus goes on to say, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and deed a greater than Jonah is here. Oh, it's good scripture, isn't it? Powerful stuff. So would a clearer picture of hell cause us to respond to God's call today? Or oh, do we preach hell these days? 
To be honest, they haven't preached hell and fire and brimstone for 200 years. And I see in the West that we've lost, we've lost the men in the church. The advertising, the advertising department uses fear all the time. But when the gospel preacher uses fear, he's condemned for it. Isn't that strange? The insurance industry works on fear. If you should die, what happens to your income? Will your children be kicked to the curb? That's familiar sort of talk, isn't it? They paint all these the most dismal, pathetic pictures of people that you could ever think of. They use fear to... But when the gospel... Is the gospel preacher now not allowed to use fear to preach the message? And basically the men of the West have lost a reverential fear of God and our churches and prayer meetings are filled with women but the men are gone. What has happened? Jesus himself likens his experience to that of hell. Preach positive messages. When I went into ministry, the leader of the largest church denomination in Australia, a past leader, he said... He told me, he said, if you want to build a church, Jeff, he said, you have to preach a positive message. And I'm thinking, okay. And that's what we are told. You must preach a positive message. And so when you give your life to Jesus Christ, here is the positive side to this message. And I say, this is what you are saved from. And the Bible gives a clear description of hell. And I pray that you would Work with me for a couple of minutes while I talk about hell. Because nobody ever does. When was the last time anybody here heard a message on hell? We preach heaven all the time, but we never minister hell. We know what we are saved from, but not, a, not game to even speak of it. We call it Sheol, we call it the depths, we call it every other name except hell. In fact, many, many Bibles have removed the word hell and replaced it with alternatives. Because it's not user-friendly. It doesn't build churches. But I want to tell you, a, a reverential fear of God and a knowledge of hell will help you stay out of hell. It will help you. It will not thwart you in a moment. A basic, Revelations 20 and verse 15, it calls it a lake of fire. Revelations 20 and verse 1 says, it's a bottomless pit. Other places, I'll just go through the attributes. It's a horrible burning tempest. This is word for word from scripture, okay? Word for word. It's called a devouring fire. It's called a place of sorrows. It's called a place where they wail. It's called a place of weeping a furnace of fire, a place of torments, everlasting burning, says Isaiah. Revelations, John says it's a place of filthiness. I hate filthiness. I was talking to somebody who wants to do some cleaning in the church, and I said, I like things to be clean because they reflect light. When things are filthy, they stop reflecting light. When your, light, when your life is clean, you will reflect light. Isn't that an interesting thing? Paul says in Thessalonians, everlasting destruction. Matthew says it's a place of outer darkness. John says that it's a place where they have no rest. Matthew says again, a place where they can never repent. A place where they scream for mercy, says Luke. Matthew goes on, a place of everlasting punishment. Revelation's a place where they gnaw their tongues. A place of blackness and darkness forever, says Jude. Everybody speaks of it. In fact, the whole Bible from beginning to end speaks of it. 
and yet we can't from the pulpit? Surely this must change. A place prepared for Satan and his angels, it was never meant for people. A place where they scream for water. A place where they will be tormented and brimstone. A place where there are dogs, meaning there are people who are debased. Sorcerers and debaucherers. Revelation says where they will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Mark says where their worm, that means torment, does not die and their fire is not quenched. Luke goes on to say where they do not want loved ones to come. Oh, isn't that an important one? It is a place where you do not want your worst of enemies to go. That is just a brief run through. Absolutely brief. Jonah was experiencing firsthand when he went down into the mouth of a giant fish and taken into the depths of the ocean, he was experiencing some of the attributes of hell where God has his attention. And if you and I could grasp some of these pictures of hell, God would have your attention and your life certainly would live more for him. And your life would be a more of a witness to those around us because we could not bear to see our brothers and sisters, our enemies, people walking down the street. You wouldn't want them to go there. But the plight of the people of Nineveh is no different. If Jonah, a man gifted by God to bring the message of repentance and redemption, doesn't deliver, hell would have been their destiny. And can you see why God had prepared this and he got prepared that? Because he wanted, he desperately, God has a love for all the nations and the peoples of the earth. All the peoples of the nations of the earth. And so the four chapters of the book of, known, uh, of Jonah should have been written in only ten verses. But Jonah preached not a feel-good message because he was told to preach a message of repentance. That's not a feel-good message. These days, our pulpits are filled with feel-good messages. Everybody goes home feeling warm and fuzzy. And that's wonderful when you sense the presence of God. And last week we spoke on family and the body of Christ. And it was a great meeting and the presence of God was awesome, wasn't it? It was beautiful and many, many people commented on that. And so Jonah had a revival. Uh, Jonah preached not a feel-good message, but a message of doom and destruction. And Jonah's worst fears came upon him. The people repented. He hated the Assyrians. He hated these mean and nasty people. His intent was for them to go to hell. He was quite content for them to go to hell. These mean and nasty people needed to go to hell, he thought. But God had a different plan for these people. He said they don't know their left hand from their right hand. Spiritually, absolutely ignorant. And so Jonah chapter 4, let's go to Jonah chapter 4. So the people, actually I'll go to 3, 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And even the king and the animals were forced to fast. Everybody repented. You receive repentance got you saved and repentance will keep you saved. Keep a short account with God. Keep a short account with God. Anyway, the whole of the place, 
Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Fancy that, a revivalist preacher being angry when everybody rocked up to the altar call. (laughs) Imagine if I had an altar call and the whole of Charter's Towers fronted up. And instead of being joyful and praising God, I was angry because I had wanted these people to see their end. Therefore, I fled previously. And and the Lord, uh, in in chapter 4, verse 2, and so... He prayed to the Lord and said, Our Lord, was not this what I had said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. And so we see here, oh, that's your problem, God, Jonah was saying. That's your problem, God. You are gracious and you're merciful. Lord, you've got some issues. You're slow to anger and abundant and having kindness. One who relents from doing harm. Lord, you have real issues. You have issues. And so Jonah in verse 5, he sits on the lookout to get a bird's eye view. Perhaps the Lord was going to relent and perhaps the Lord was still going to destroy this people. And so Jonah sat himself on the, on the lookout overlooking Nineveh because he wanted to watch the show. He thought he wanted, it was one of, it wasn't a sound and light show, it was a fire and brimstone show. And he wanted to have the, the uppermost seat. <coughs> oh, it's a good story, isn't it? It's a good story, but it reveals the heart of man which is so desperately wicked. The world says, trust your heart. That's what the world says in all those beautiful movies, feel-good movies, and you've got horses in them. Oh, throw your heart over and the horse will go over with you and all this sort of stuff, and it's all soft and mushy and lovely and everything, but it's so desperately untrue. The heart above all things is desperately wicked. That's what the Bible says. And the heart above all things can be deceived. And we are living in what is called a dispensation or day of deception. When things that are good are actually bad and things that are bad are actually good. Where light should be called darkness and darkness should be called light. We're bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Things are on their head. Things are turned around. And people use euphemisms, beautiful names for what is called wickedness. Amen? That's what the Bible says. Just a footnote here. And in regard to bringing a word, if God gives you a word and he wants you to speak to a people so far from God and you think they will never listen, Jonah thought the same. He had no idea he was that good a preacher. For a whole city, even the king, the animals, the city encompassed about four other minor cities around it. You can have a look at that, the geographical location of those things. But Proverbs 3, 27 and 28, these are really interesting scriptures. And it says, do not withhold good. And I put in brackets there, good news. Do not hold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power of your hand to do so. Verse 28, do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you now. We have the gospel and the message of salvation and the Bible says in Isaiah that today is the acceptable day of salvation. Today is the acceptable day. 
and you say, do not withhold good. In other words, Proverbs teaches wisdom here. Do not withhold good. You have that message of salvation and those people need to hear that message of salvation whether you feel they are ready for it or not. It's great to pick ripe fruit for sure. But the Lord says, if the Lord gives you a word, go and speak to that somebody. A lot of times we go and... uh, 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 I remember ministering to a group of people in Mackay many years ago at an evening meeting. And I said, whoever says that the gospel was going to be convenient... Well, I'll go and speak to somebody when I'm on my way. That's not what God says. He's saying, fuel up your car and go to that place. You see, it's not convenient. It's never convenient to serve God. Never. We seem to have or have it in our mind a concept that it is always convenient to serve God. We can do things for God when we are doing something else. But God has a specific task for you. He has specific people for you. And he wants you to fuel up your car, set a day aside, not just when you're there, not when you intend to be in the area. No, specifically for that people to bring them to Christ. I just read out what's in store for those who do not come to Christ. And the blood of all those people in Nineveh would have been on Jonah's hands had not the Lord prepared a fish, the Lord prepared a storm, the Lord prepared a gourd, the Lord prepared this and the Lord prepared that. God intervened. But I say the cost of disobedience will be the blood of those who will not be sitting in heaven beside you. Amen. I certainly don't want that on my hands. The will of the Lord that none should perish. And that is really the title of this message today. That none should perish. 2 Peter 3.9. This is the heart of God in regard to the wickedness and your next door neighbours and people in your own family. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness. He is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I haven't done a word study for the Greek word all, but my guess it means all. That's fairly deep, isn't it? In Hebrew, it probably means all as well. In Dutch, it probably means all. In Scottish, in Irish, in the South Sea Island languages, all probably means all. It is the will of God that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's called a gift of repentance. When you minister the gospel out of a heart of love, filled with faith, all people can respond. Matthew 18, 13 to 14, And he should find it, assuredly I say to you, this is the parable of the sheep. He rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go to stray. Verse 14, Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God is not content to see Charter's Towers a face an eternal lost destiny. He's not content with that. Not content. And neither should the church. We can't be comfortable with ourselves just sitting here while a lot of people have an eternal destiny separated from God. Luke 9.56, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy man's lives, but to save them. John 3.17, this is what John says, For God did not send his Son into the world, Jesus said, to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be the saved. You see, this is the heart and the message of God. It is not the will of God. John 12, 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. 
Paul says in 1 Timothy, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. You see the heart of God? We preach hell, but because we know the heart of God here. First, uh, Second Samuel, yet God does not take away our life. It says, I love this, but devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. What a powerful word. Have you ever seen that scripture before? It was, a Tekoa, it was a woman by the name of Tekoa who stood before King David pleading for the banished son of Absalom to come back into favour. But she knew the heart of God. She says, I'll repeat, yet God does not take away her life, but devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. You see how much God loves people? He just loves people. And he's thinking of ways... He's thinking of ways to use you, Gavin, out there in the wilderness, out there and amongst the cattle. He's saying, if I redirect a, purse, a cow over there somewhere, Gavin's going to be able to meet with this guy over here, tell him the good news, and he's going to be rounded up for me as well. It's a good message, isn't it? God ought, this is the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And if you will allow, ask the Lord to order your steps. I have never found a time... I remember being out of the paddock, it was 25 years ago, I was out in the middle of the paddock at the back of um, Townsville, out in the bush, 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. And I said, Lord, I want to be able to minister to somebody tomorrow in my travels at work. I had a commercial cleaning business, carpet cleaning and building maintenance and we did everything. It was amazing. And, and I th- the next day, I had to go to a home. The elderly lady came down to the stairs and she says, my daughter just come home from hospital last night. This is the first day for the rest of the life when she will wake up this morning and her tongue has been removed. And I knew in that moment of time that was the person the Lord wanted to speak to me. And she came out, that young beautiful lady came out of that bedroom that morning while I was working in the home and the tears, just the anguish in her face as that woman was to wake up for the first time in her life, never to be able to speak again. It was a, and the grief that was on her face, but I knew I had a message of hope. When I brought up the invoice, I had a Bible in my car to give the family. And I said, I prayed last night that the Lord would ask me to speak to somebody of your goodness and your grace and to give you hope. And I know it is you. And I opened up the scriptures and I gave it to her and the family. Oh, it was such a blessing. But you, God can order your steps too. Do you have a heart for the people who are separated from God, who don't know, don't know their left hand from their right hand? Ezekiel says, Do I have pleasure in all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? The heart of God from Genesis to the book of Revelations. Ezekiel 18, 32. I have, for I have no pleasure. This is God speaking. In the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God, therefore turn and live. That is the message of hope which we bring to our friends. Amen? Ezekiel goes on to... Uh, so, uh, so there are some here this morning like the Ninevites. There are some people out there in our neighborhood and they're mean and they're nasty and they're wicked and they're cruel, but the Lord says go. The Lord says go. Because I reckon I was a bit mean and nasty and wicked and cruel when I didn't have God. 
I saw everything through my own eyes, for my own benefit, for my own wages. If it didn't benefit me, I wasn't much part of it. Only what God had placed in my life beforehand. When you have a look at the meaning for transgression, it means to go beyond established limits. And we have all transgressed. We've gone beyond God's established limits. And we have violated and transgressed God's ways. But the good news is, God himself went beyond established limits of grace. He went beyond established limits of chesed or mercy. And he sent his son to pay the penalty for our extreme waywardness to receive his extreme love through the death and resurrection of his one and only son. What a good message, eh? What a good message. God has gone to extreme levels of grace and mercy and love so that you and I could be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, Jeff, you're a bit fanatical. You're a bit full on. But God's love was full on. God's love for us was fanatical. Extreme, you would have to say. In closing right now, I used a message last week and I used a, something that William Booth did when he sent that message to all his people around the earth and the word said others. But here is another one it brought to mind. I, I can't recall where I saw it. but And William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, had a vision. And in that vision, he saw a whole heap of people because he was born in England. And they were on a beautiful boardwalk around the lake or waterway. Beautiful parks, butterflies, birds, magnificent scenery. Ladies dressed magnificently with their parasols. And gentlemen in their suits and top hats. A distinguished group, you'd have to say. But out in the water, there were people in the water. And they were bobbing up and down bobbing up and down. There was a whole multitude, a sea of people out in the water, out in the bay, and they were bobbing up and down till they bobbed no more. And really you would have to say the vision that William Booth has was a picture of the church, fairly comfortable, well-dressed, well-respected, even civilised. I think that's probably one of the greatest problems of the church these days is that we we're too civilised. We're too worried about what people think. But if the gospel is true, if heaven is true and hell is true, wouldn't you rather give up being looking so civilized and get out there amongst it and do the work of the ministry? The intrinsic value of every human life is described in the book of Numbers, where it lists family after family after family and you get to the book of Numbers and you go, well, here we go again. Just names. Just names. But to God, they're not just names. And the biggest complaint that we have, oh, we're just a number. But you're not in the sight of God. You're a person that he died for. His blood was shed individually. God knows every single individual listening online and to those here today. He knows your heart. Before you were formed in the womb, he knew you. 
He counts your steps. He knows the number of your breaths. He knows the number of your days. He knows the thought and intent of your heart. And he knows you better than you know yourself. Oh, no, you're not just a name. You're not just a name. He knows you personally. And he died on the cross. Jonah forgot that. And so the Lord put him in the belly of a a great fish. And he reminded him of what hell would be to those whom he didn't reach. Let's just stand to our feet while Jill's just comes to the keys. Oh, I pray. Oh, what's, what a positive message, amen? This church is going to go because of my positive preaching. <laughs> it's okay to speak about hell, you know? It's okay to speak about heaven. It's okay to speak about salvation. And there is warnings. The Bible's full of warnings. Why? Because God's love for you is so immense is so intense and his individual love for every single person here is so intimate the Lord knows your heart he knows what you're thinking in the midnight hour the Bible says he 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 puts your tears into his bottle the tears that you cry at two o'clock in the morning when you're grieving about something you've lost something you've lost someone You've lost finances, you've lost health, you've lost loved ones. You're grieving over things that you've said and done yourself. But the Lord counts your tears and puts them into his bottle. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would, as Priscilla said and Ezekiel, that you would take away our heart of stone. Give us a heart of flesh, Father, a supernatural heart. I need a supernatural heart to minister, to shepherd to people. Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes it's not easy. I have to admit that. But I pray that the Lord would give me a heart for people. He's not content to lose one sheep, let alone one person. Father, in the name of Jesus, do a supernatural work, Lord God, here today in our hearts, Father. Oh, that we would see the eternal destiny, Lord, of peoples. There is light, there is darkness, there is heaven, there is hell. There is eternal destiny separated from you. Or there is an eternal destiny in your presence. Father, give us a heart for the people, Lord, for the Charters Towers region and beyond. Father, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Before I close, I'm going to pray a simple prayer. If you would repeat it to yourself as I pray and you mean it with all your heart, you will literally be born again of the Spirit of God. But that means you've signed up, but then we go on to be a disciple of Christ. Amen? We need to be discipled in the things of God, strengthened and built up, not remain as infants, but building up our spiritual faith. So I'm going to pray now. Father, in the name of Jesus. I come to you now. I come to you now. I have been a sinful person. I have been a sinful I ask person. that you cleanse me of my sin. I ask that you cleanse me of I my repent sin. and am deeply sorry. I repent and I am deeply sorry. Not just in words. Not just in words. But I turn around. But I turn around. 180 degrees. 180 degrees. And walk a different direction. And walk a different direction. I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I receive Jesus as my Holy Spirit, come and rule in my life. Holy Spirit, come and rule in my life. I thank you, Lord, that I'm a new creation. I thank you, Lord, that I'm a new creation. 
salvation. In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. 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 And amen. Thank you.